0: on the Sermon on the Mount called Flip, how Jesus changes everything. He flips things upside down in, in our lives. And his teaching really uh, does uh, flip a lot of the ways that we think about things. And um, a lot of people will say, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount. But I remember I read it to you a number of weeks ago, C.S. Lewis's response to that. He said... How can anyone love the Sermon on the Mount? Like really love the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, it's like saying you love getting hit with a sledgehammer to the head. That's what C.S. Lewis said. Because the Sermon on the Mount is hit after hit after hit after hit. I mean, if you want a hard-hitting sermon, the Sermon on the Mount is it. And there's lots of things in there that don't feel good when you hear them. And uh, so in many ways, it's good. It's good. Like, you know, some people would say, man, Jesus packed so much into that little sermon. I wish my preacher was like that. Just hit me and hit me and hit me and hit me, and I go home early. <laughs> I'm not like that. <laughs> and I don't know if you'd, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this. I thought most churches wouldn't have Jesus back as a guest speaker, <laughs> they wouldn't. We like nuance, we like, you know, give us the shades of gray. Uh, we like uh, soften it, uh, you know, give it into our context. Jesus was just, it was hammer blow after hammer blow, of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you say, I love the Sermon on the Mount, maybe you haven't read it yet. I mean, it seriously has got some uh, powerful uh, gut punches in it. And uh, I can only imagine uh, what it would be like to have heard it for the very first time. Now the good thing about going... Uh, Um, systematically through a scripture passage like the Sermon on the Mount, is that you end up talking about topics that you might have not chosen to talk about. You might have skipped them otherwise. So that's the good thing about it. The bad thing about going through a series of, like, systematically like that, is you have to talk about the things you don't want to talk about. And that's where I find myself today. Today's topic is one of those ones where you're like, well, it's good because now we're talking about it. But it's bad because it's my job. Okay, Matthew 5, 31 to 32. We're going to tackle a really tough topic this morning. Let's pray first. Lord, would you edit? Would you edit for me? I pray that what I bring would be helpful, truthful, grace-filled. It would honor you. I don't want to dishonor your words. I don't want to dishonor your teaching in any way. I pray that if I'm in the way of them and that they lack their potency, or their effect on lives because of me, would you, would you help shift uh, my commentary? But I pray that we'd have hearts that would receive uh, what you have to say. If my commentary is forgotten, that's fine. But your word, let it penetrate in our in our lives and in our hearts. In your name, Amen. All right, so I'm going to just get right into it. Well, Jesus hit us. Uh, with Matthew 5, 31 to 32. And the topic today is divorce and remarriage. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, we couldn't depict picked a more awkward and difficult passage uh, To talk about. (laughs) Let me tell you about my church. Hillcrest has loads of singles, loads of marrieds, loads of divorced people, loads of remarried people, loads of widows and widowers. I mean, everything you find in Moose John, the surrounding area, is here. So we're not talking about somebody else, we're talking about us. We're talking about us. So when we talk about divorce, it gets real real. Now as a church, you might have known that uh, we've had a couple events called Blended and Blessed. A couple years we've had, uh, and and it's been a really good event. So it's like blended families. So people who mostly have been divorced and remarried coming together for great teaching to encourage one another, and it's been really a positive event. And we've celebrated as a church because we do love uh, blended families. We love blended families. And they're a very integra- integral part of our church. So, but yet, we're going to have to reckon with Jesus' words, so let's, let's go uh, there. Okay, so I, wa- I want to, one of the first things I want to just quickly say is that it's interesting having Jesus talk about divorce. Because you say, well, well, how is Jesus qualified? He wasn't married, nor was he divorced. And your preacher this morning is the same. I, I've, ne- I've been married, so I've won up on Jesus. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so, you think you're thinking you're counting every word I use. She's she's watching. So I if, if I'm married. I I've, I've not been divorced. I'm part of a big family. I have six siblings. They're all married and none of them have been divorced. My parents are, were married and lived their whole lives not divorced, and most of my relatives on my side of the family are married and not divorced. So, I don't know, like, that, does that qualify me? Does that put me in a big light? The thing about Jesus, that Jesus in his life, I mean, he's the son of God. That's the ultimate, ultimate authority to be able to speak on anything. But his parents were almost divorced. Right? Do you remember the story, the Christmas story? Now, the divorce that he was, that almost happened was an interesting divorce, and uh, it was thought that Mary had committed some form of sexual immorality, that she had been sleeping with somebody else. And so, what would have happened is that Joseph would have seen that, hey, Mary, you're pregnant. It wasn't me. So, we were betrothed, in other words, like a really strong engagement. We were supposed to be married. It's almost like we were married, but we haven't had sex and so, I'm going to call this whole thing off. And it was called divorce to, to actually end that betrothal. Right? And Joseph might have done it alone. He might have had his dad who was part of Because, you know, maybe the dads in those days might have had a hand in sort of Mary and Joseph. You two would be perfect for each other when you get older. Right? So, dad might have come along and said, man, I'm really disappointed to the other dad about how this has turned out. Your daughter, seriously. What's going on? Right? But an angel in a dream, came to Joseph and said, this is of the Holy Spirit, this is a miracle, and you got to, you know, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And he did, and uh, the whole story changed. But this is not something that is not in Jesus' world, right? There might have been a little bit of suspicion around Jesus growing up. We don't know that. But if people might have been telling the tale of, wait, wait, wait. You're Mary and Joseph's kid. The whisper around town is that you're not really Joseph's kid. And so there might have been a stigma around Jesus growing up, and he might have known some of those things. So Jesus shares the Sermon on the Mount, you know, gut punch of a of a, a couple verses, and it I you have to sort of almost connect the dots of what happens later. Because it's, there was the Pharisees always trying to trick Jesus, and it seems like they might have come back later hearing that he's talking about divorce and remarriage, which were hot, hot topics of the day, and saying, whoa, 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 let's try to trick Jesus in this area. Now, they were setting up a trap, and I want to say, this is, this is just conjecture, but this might have been the trap they were trying to set up. Jesus had a cousin named John the Baptist. He spoke negatively about King Herod. And what King Herod had done was he was breaking the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, he had coveted, coveted his brother's wife. I don't know, maybe she was good-looking, maybe, you know, that's not always why people commit adultery. In fact, in most cases, it's not because they're good-looking, it's because of lots of other reasons. But he saw his brother's wife, wanted her instead of his own wife, so he divorced his own wife and took his brother's wife as his own. Because he's the king, he could do whatever he wanted. And usually your character is revealed when you have power, isn't it? And that's what happened. So who would dare speak against King Herod? Well, John the Baptist was a wild man, and he spoke against everything that wasn't right. And so he spoke up, and he said, this is wrong, and he was put into prison. Now, King Herod's new wife, she had a daughter. And she, one night, at a wild party at King Herod's place, where everybody had had a few drinks, she did a dance. And it pleased King Herod so much that he said, tell me what you want to this young girl. What do you want? I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. And so... This daughter walked over to her mom, you know, she was a bit of a dance mom, and she went over to the dance mom and said, what should I ask? And the dance mom, who hated John the Baptist denouncing their Herod's divorce and their remarriage, said, I want John the Baptist's head on a plate. And that's what she got. That's how John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, dies. So these Pharisees, I'm just saying this is conjecture. We don't know if this is true, but this is in the news, right? If they had Facebook feeds, there'd be lots of articles shared about John the Baptist being beheaded because of the drama surrounding King Herod. So maybe, just maybe, the Pharisees are thinking, if we can get Jesus to denounce King Herod's, if we can get him talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage, He might just put his foot in his mouth, and we don't have to get rid of him like we want to. Maybe King Herod will do it for us. Maybe Jesus' head will be on a plate someday too. And so they come to him and test him. So I'm going to jump to Matthew 19, and I'm going to jump into verse 2. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So, is it lawful or permissible for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? There's two schools of thought in the day. The, the very conservative scholars would say you could only divorce for marital unfaithfulness. And maybe, some authors have actually said it might even be more restrictive than that. It might only be the, the um, because that word that's used in there, it might only be um, what Joseph and Mary could, or Mary could have been accused of. And that's actually sex before marriage. It might have even been more restrictive than that. So some authors actually believe it's even more restrictive than adultery. That adultery wouldn't have accounted, but sex before marriage would have nullified things and they would have got divorced before they were actually married. Does that make sense? So that was where one group of scholars were. The very uh, other end of the spectrum were, were scholars who said, a man is a man and he can do whatever he wants. And if he wants to divorce his wife, who's to stop him? In fact, it was a thing, I believe, I've heard this several times, I didn't look it up, so I should probably double-check it, but a, a man could, you've probably heard it before, a man could say to his wife, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, three times, and they would be divorced. So this is the for any and every reason camp. And then over here was the almost no reason in fact, maybe only the Joseph and Mary example reason. And that's it. So this is, these are wildly different opinions on divorce and remarriage. So, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? In Jesus' day, the trend was swinging more towards this really permissive camp. The any and every reason camp. And they... Probably know, because if they've heard about the Sermon on the Mount, this is after the Sermon on the Mount, if they've heard about the Sermon on the Mount, they know that Jesus swings more this way. They don't know exactly maybe where he's at, but they say, I think Jesus was pretty strict on this. And most people are here, and Herod is way over there. Let's get him in trouble. So they're trying to trap him. So he says, haven't you... Read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Wow, this is pretty interesting stuff. Marriage does makes a miracle. Marriage makes a miracle. Every time you do a math equation, one plus one equals two. But in this case, one plus one equals one. Marriage makes two into one. And you know that line, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. I did a wedding just a few weeks ago. I quoted that very same verse in the ceremony. I do it in every ceremony. What God has joined together. So you say, well, we chose to get married. But in a way, God has a hand in every Marriage, joining two into one. So then they go on. They say, Why then? They asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now divorce was allowed in the time of Moses and out throughout that era. But there had to be a reason. For a divorce. Let's talk about the certificate of divorce. There had to be a reason. That reason had to be approved. There had to be a signed certificate that made sure that whatever settlement she was going to get was fair. Wouldn't be probably like today. She probably wouldn't get half of anything. But she wouldn't. The certificate of divorce was a compassionate law. A compassionate law. Mostly men held all the cards in relationships in the marriages of that day. And so the camp who said, well, guys, you can just say you're divorced and then she's got to get out. That that attitude had been there for a long, long time, way back to the time of Moses. But Moses came along and this is what you do when there's a mess. You try to make it a little less messy. And so Moses came along and said, no, 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 there's got to be a certificate of divorce. She's got to be able to hold something up when she goes back to her family, probably. Otherwise, Women everywhere are going to be homeless and destitute. We have to have some legislation around this. There's got to be some sort of settlement. There's got to be some sort of reason given. There's got to be something around this. And you know what? This is good. This is really good. Moses' certificate of divorce was a, a compassionate and good thing. And anyone who works in you know, areas of government or legislation that tries to make this messy area less messy and more compassionate, good for you. Really good for you. I, I talked to the lawyer, I was playing soccer with him, a young lawyer, playing soccer this winter, and he told me about how they really work to, uh, when, they, when people are getting divorced, they really work hard to, to make it more conciliatory and mediate it, and, and he talked about, you know, different models of, of going through those proceedings, so it's less agonizing and antagonistic. And I commended him, heartily, never met the guy before until that soccer game, until we played together, and I just commended him, I said, good for you, because that's such a hard time in people's lives. I commend you for trying to make something that's very difficult less painful. So that's compassion, and good for you for having that. Now, there's two sides to these things. There's the compassion of, hey, this is a mess. Let's try to make it less messy. But there's the other compassion, which is saying, is there a way to prevent the mess? And I think both are needed in every area, in every area. Some of you, you gravitate to one or the other right? Some of you are just great truth tellers. So you're just like, I am going to tell you the truth so that you don't go off a cliff. And that's how you contribute in this way. Other people are like, I'm not very good at truth tellers, but I'm a great hugger. So after people go off the cliff, I'll hug them at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and that's needed too. Both roles are, are important. I'm not diminishing one or the other. I'm just saying, whatever God, gift God's given you, please use it. Because both are needed. Because there's a lot of hurt in, in, our, in our culture and in our society. So, so Moses said, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure there's a certificate of divorce, and that's just like government today, dealing with the fruit of sin, right? How to make a mess less messy. But we also need to deal with the root, not just the fruit. And Jesus spelled it out. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. What's the root of the mess? Jesus was saying, it's the hardness of heart. Saying the men, and he was speaking to men because mostly women didn't have. There is verses about women not divorcing too. I think that he, that's Jesus in Luke. But most of it's written to men. Because they had the, the power to do mostly what they wanted to do. And so he said, the men, because of their hardness of heart towards women, and towards God are creating devastation in this area. And a certificate of divorce is nice. It's actually a good thing, but it's not enough. The hardness of heart must be addressed. You know, I think in most relationships, that's what it is. It's hardness of heart that we get into. We don't fall out of love so much, I think. But we do fall out of repentance and forgiveness. The practice of saying, okay... We hurt each other. We said some things. We did some things. We need to continually reconcile. We need to come back in forgiveness. We need to have I'm sorry, and will you forgive me? And yes, I will forgive you. And and let's keep working and keep working and keep working. Most couples that keep in that pattern, most, I'm not saying all, there's no big blanket I can paint everything with, but we'll do better if they do that. They keep staying in repentance and forgiveness and keep embracing that. Jesus goes on. He says, okay, so you got these certificates of divorce. Moses permitted it. It's just an exception because your hearts were hard. But this was not the way from the beginning. Now, here's what Jesus does. He's been asked about divorce. But Jesus really wants to talk about marriage. He's been asked about divorce, but he really wants to talk about marriage. And it reminds me of an old adage. My old pastor used to say it growing up. Maybe you heard it if you grew up in a church too. He used to say that at the bank, if you're training a teller to spot counterfeit bills, you don't give them counterfeit bills. You give them the real bills. And you have them handle them and touch them and count them and get so familiar with them that when the counterfeit comes along, they go, whoa, that's not real. I think Jesus sort of wants to do that too. He's like saying, okay, okay, we can talk about all what's wrong about divorce and all this stuff, but let's talk about what it should be. Actually, let's talk what it was meant to be. Let's be really familiar with what marriage was meant to be. Let's know that really well. So then something comes along that isn't that. We'll go, whoa, hey, that ain't it. That's not God's plan. That's not what he designed. So Jesus begins down this road of, of teaching on marriage. He says, it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, again, that in the Greek is pornea, but it's not pornography, but same root word. Pornea, again, lots of debate about this one word. So many scholars are waiting on this one word. And... Uh, They've come out in different directions. I'm not real confident about what it means because I've read so many articles and so many different perspectives. But he goes on to say, anyone who tells you divorces divorce his wife except for sexual immorality, so I'm not sure all that's in that, whether it's really broad or sort of narrow, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Jesus is saying in another way, he's saying, when God makes a couple one, A certificate of of divorce doesn't undo that. You can't un-one what God has made one. Now, hold on before you throw something at me, because you might want to. I, I wore my running shoes this morning in case it gets heated. I can just hit the exit and I'm gone. Actually, I just was dressing in the dark and my wife wasn't there to help me. <laughs> um. <laughs> if you've been divorced, many of you have. Lots, of, lots in, of, in, our, in our congregation have. And, and we have divorced people leading at every level in our, in our congregation. Right? There's significant pillars of our church who are divorced in our congregation. But if you've been divorced, you know the reality of what Jesus is talking about experientially. That you say, well, I I got this certificate of divorce. It's all done. But yet, there's residual here. There's something that's still here. It's still, it's not just I can walk away. It's a clean break and that there's nothing left. You suddenly realize there's a whole bunch left. There's baggage, there's feelings, there's sometimes obsessing about things. There's all sorts of things that show that, whoa, that actually, you know, when you get married and you come together and God makes you one, it's not easy to undo that. In fact, it seems like you can't really undo that. Now, I'm not making a statement at this point about whether or not you should get divorced or not. I'm not actually making that statement. I'm just talking about the reality of what a marriage does. That it's a real dynamic in our lives that isn't just that you can skate out of it and you're not attached in some way. A certificate of divorce won't do that. So the disciples said to him, if this is the situation, Now, wait, wait. Wasn't he talking to the Pharisees? He was. The Pharisees were trying to trap him. And here's the disciples. They're like, we've seen this before. Jesus always kicks the Pharisees' butts in debates. This is awesome. I am so pumped about what Jesus is about to say. But then Jesus says what he's about to say, and they're like, hold on. Pharisees, get out of here. What are you saying? Jesus, if this is how it is, nobody's going to want to be married. Jesus, let let us help you do a bit of PR here. (laughs) There's no way this will be popular in any culture. We're supposed to take your message to the ends of the earth. You just said, I mean, it's pretty good for us guys right now. I mean, it's getting more and more that if we want out of our marriages, we can get out. And you, you're making it harder. You're making it more difficult. Don't you want followers? I mean, it's starting to hit them. We're your disciples. That means we are embracing your lifestyle of discipline. That's what disciple, discipline, they sort of go together, right? So it's like, you're telling us our marriages are for life? Oh, I didn't know that when I signed up. So it's not the Pharisees at this point that are attacking Jesus. It's his own disciples that are ready to revolt. Because they're saying, this is severe, Jesus. This is extreme. If this is the situation, I'm reading the scripture right now, between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. If you understand the implications of God's design for marriage, and you still want to primarily live for yourself, you're not going to like what Jesus said about marriage. You're not. The disciples were shocked by Jesus' teaching. They didn't like what it meant for them. And they were the ones who jumped into the discussion. So now Jesus is not just fending off the Pharisees. He's explaining to his disciples, and he replies, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Now, that's probably not very reassuring to the disciples because they're like, oh, we're the disciples. It's obviously given to us. You know, people who reject Jesus, well, that's they're not beholden to this. And that's something we always have to remember as Christians is that when you receive teaching that's for Christians, we receive it because we trust God. We receive it because we trust God. It's not fair to go to somebody who doesn't trust God and say, hey, you know it's wrong to get divorced or whatever, I'm not, let me just, you know. Like, wagging your finger at a person who doesn't follow Jesus and telling them, shame on you for not doing what Jesus requires his disciples to do? That's ridiculous, because they'd be saying, well, I'm not one of his disciples. I've never signed up. I don't actually trust God. This is for Christians. This is for Christians. If you come to trust God, then naturally what flows out of that is you trust God about marriage, you trust God about sexual ethics, you trust God about parenting, how you should run your business, what kind of student you should be how you should treat your mom and dad and your kids and everyone else, you begin to trust God because you go, whoa, if he was willing, God the Father, to give me Jesus, to die on the cross in my place, to take my sins on him so I can have the righteousness of God and boldly approach the throne of grace, that's where God is, then he's going to give me everything else. I trust him. I trust him. There's so many things in the Word where I'm like, whoa, that's hard, Jesus. But you know what? I've seen in every... Every area of my life where I've actually trusted you, that that's for my good. It's not always for my easy, but it's for my good. And so, I trust you. So no, not everyone can accept this word. And believe me, not everyone has. But only those whom it has been given. And then he goes on to say, for there are eunuchs. That's, there would be people who are single. Okay, Eunuchs are more than single. They're single with, the, with an operation that goes with it. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who chose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's that last line that's potent. Those who choose to live unmarried, even though they pro, some of them could get married, they choose to live unmarried for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So he, he sort of gives you this thing. There's marriage. Christians have two amazing options. One is get married and partner with your spouse, your husband or your wife uh, to advance the kingdom of God. Or remain single and because you don't have the distraction of trying to please a husband or wife, go even harder for God. And you know, when I see, I'm inspired, when I see singles who take this seriously, they do go harder, they do go farther, they do, they actually have this incredible advantage Uh, To really serve God. I I got married at 27. So 18 to 27. If you're a biologist, you know what that means. The 10 years of a man's highest sex drive. I was single. And celibate. I wasn't having sex. Now that tells me something. It told me something. It's possible to do that. If I could do that decade, trusting in Jesus, looking to Him, it wasn't because I had great willpower. In fact, I found out I didn't have great willpower at all. I found out I was the guy who needed all sorts of structure to stay out of trouble. But that's what I did. I just built all sorts of structure to stay out of trouble because I wasn't strong, I was weak. That was the smartest thing I ever realized. I'm weak in this area. I need help more than most. Some other guys could ace this by their willpower. I won't be able to. When you're, if you're a single person, don't, again, don't let anyone look down on you in the church, outside of the church. Live for God. Just like the call to marry people is the same. Live for God. With your marriage, in your marriage, as best you can do. So Jesus had said this, you know, so you've got marriage, you've got singleness. These are the two options. Sex, the implication is, sex only fits within the boundaries of marriage. And nowhere else. And nowhere else. I could rattle on and on about all the other else's. But I'm not going to deal with the counterfeit. I'm going to talk to you about the real. This is, what, this is what it is. Sex is meant for marriage. In marriage, not before marriage and not outside of marriage, but in marriage, it bonds you together. It has a gluing effect between two people. So it's a great blessing to marriage. It's for procreation, obviously. It's also for pleasure, obviously. But it's, it's a binding thing. One thing, I'll just throw this out. I'm just throwing this one out for free. If you... Have sex before you're married. While you're in the selection process of who should I marry, you're dumber. Not that you're dumb to do it. I'm just saying your mind is affected. Your actual brain chemistry is affected. You make, because it's an attachment thing. So you're saying, wow, I don't know what I've got in common with this person, but I really like this. Maybe we should get married. You know what? People need help getting married. I mean, advice at least. It's not like you can't do it. But you should ask your friends around you when you are like loopy in love to give you perspective. That's wisdom. I mean, I was loopy in love. My friends were telling me how loopy I was. I wasn't aware of it. They were saying, you are in the room. This is when I was dating Marnie so, and, and, and engagement as well. They said, we're all in the room, Steve. You don't notice any of us. You don't talk to any of us anymore. You are lost. What happened to you? I'm like, I don't do that. They're like, no, every single time Marnie is in the room, you are not engaging us. Really? I didn't even, I was even self-aware, right? So I had come back to a lot of my friends and say, I am totally head over heels for this girl. Can you give me some advice? What if I'm marrying an ax murderer? That was a movie out about that time, and I was concerned. (laughs) If Mike Myers can be fooled, then I could be fooled. I mean, he's smart. So so I asked lots of people. I said, give me advice, give me wisdom in this area. Help me. Jesus uses the definition of marriage uh, in here. He talks about in the beginning. He uses the definition that's not original to him. He uses the definition of marriage from Genesis. And I'm going to just share this with you real quick. Genesis 1, 26 to 29. So what is marriage? That's where we're going. God said, let's make mankind in our image, our our Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in our likeness so that they, man and woman, may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man and woman, To care for and manage creation. That's a pretty big role. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So that's huge. And then in Genesis chapter 2, 24, he says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So what are the clues? What do we get out of this? We find out marriage is a man and a woman. Becoming one like God is one. You know, there's a very interesting parallel. You think about it. A man, a woman, and remember they walked in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve, with God. A man, a woman, and their God. One, two, three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one, two, three. It's like almost like there's a, like here's the Trinity and when God makes us in his image, it's like he wants what good is here to be here in marriage. Wow. So a man and a woman becoming one like God. God is creative. We get to be pro-creative, right? So we create after him, fruitful and multiply. God sets the blueprint up, but we manage the production, right? And then we're managing and caring for God's creation in a shame-free and sinless relationship. This is before sin enters the world. This is before sin enters our relationships and really does all sorts of breaking damage. But this is an awesome design. So man and woman, we're like co-partners in managing this creation. There's no shame. No sin between us. We've got a really important role. We're doing it together in a partnership. It's amazing. Jesus said it wasn't like this in the beginning. It wasn't these hard hearts and these these husbands saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, you're done. That wasn't what it was meant to be. It was this awesome partnership. In the New Testament, Paul reiterates the exact same words. Listen to this. I'm going to read the whole thing. Husbands, love your wives Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for the body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, here's those words again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. I don't understand all about it. I don't think any of us do, but it's a profound mystery. And then Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Whoa. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I, I, I couldn't help but notice how lopsided these instructions are. A man needs to hear love your wife repeatedly, several times. He needs to hear it again and again, hammered home with illustrations, and then said again at the end, just in case he forgot what was just said. A woman needs seven-word phrase. And she's got it. <laughs> Men, unconditional love for your wife. Unconditional love for your wife. Man, he just hammers and hammers and hammers. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. And then at the end, oh, by the way, women, unconditional respect for your husband. They're like, got it. It's on the to-do list. to-do list already. The guy's like, what were the instructions again? (laughs) What kind of milk was I supposed to get from the store? (laughs) I'm just having fun. But in this is this power-packed phrase. I'm talking about Christ in the church. Says When he says, a a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, the two will become one flesh. I'm talking about Christ in the church. He's saying, this is an image. Of God's relationship with us, of Christ's relationship to his spiritual family, of Christ in the church. So, marriage demonstrates to the world how Christ sacrificially loves his spiritual family, the church, and how the church responds enthusiastically to that love and care. Wow. Wow. So, the Genesis teaching be fruitful man and woman come together, fruitful, shame-free relationship where they're managing creation. And then you've got Jesus teaching. Again, man and woman, male and female. He's repeating those things. He's saying that's how it was in the beginning. But he adds to it, it, uh, whatever God puts together, let no man separate. So he's talking pretty seriously about that. And then you've got Paul's teaching. And Paul's saying, this is a picture of Jesus Christ. And how he relates to the church and how the church relates back to Jesus. Marriage is more than what we often think it is. It's more than what we often think it is. You just say, well, I'll just go to the justice of peace and I'll get married. Just a civil ceremony. You know, governments have to have those things because they have to sort of keep track of stuff. Probably for inheritance, that's a big thing. You know, so you got to have laws. you got to have legislation. But you know, in the church it's more. It's more it's more, marriage is more loaded for Christians, there's more to it. We recognize that God has called us to something pretty awesome. So I was reading all the church fathers on the early church. I was reading all about them and uh, trying to find out what did they believe? What did they teach? And uh, I got really sort of confused because some guys were different. Some of you are sitting there and you're going, Steve is sidestepping all of the questions we really want to have answers to. Like, when can you get divorced, and when can you get remarried? Yeah, I'm a big chicken, I'll admit it. (laughs) This is where I went. I went to read all the early church fathers because they had an influence on that early thing, and I found out they weren't unanimous, and I was so disappointed. They weren't. Some guys were saying, like, no, just no divorce, never divorce. No reasons. Some guys said, in the case of adultery... Some guys said, well, I'm going to go a little further. I'm going to add if, if you're if you're being deserted by your spouse, then that's good too. And then others w- seemed to lean into areas where it seemed like they were okay with, hey, if there's abuse in the relationship, that should be reason, right? So it seems like, but then lots of them were really negative on remarriage. Lots of them were saying, you know what? You're married. You get divorced. You just, until that person dies, you just live single. So a lot of them were there. So I'm just giving you the report. I'm not... I'm not giving you any interpretation or commentary. I'm just giving you the report. So I read all this, and I was like, how am I supposed to stand up on Sunday morning and come up with a definitive answer? Because these guys didn't always see the same. Yet, the early church had incredible impact with their marriages. Now you'd say, well, okay, Steve, you don't have a definitive answer. Does the church at least have a statement on this? Yes, 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 we do. Thank you for asking. So I'm going to read you our uh, our church's statement. You can find it on our website under our statement of faith. I'll read it to you, and then I'll comment on it. Marriage. We believe in the sanctity of marriage as a lifelong exclusive covenant between one man and one woman. So let me comment quickly. We believe in the sanctity. Sanctity means holy. So God designed this thing, and he set it apart for specific purposes. We talked about some of them already. Okay? So it's sacred. We believe in Marriage is not just civil, it's sacred. It's a sacred thing. As a lifelong, lifelong is a big word, so till death do us apart. part, you hear that in most marriage ceremonies. And most Christians, even if they haven't got divorced and remarried, that was their intention going in. I honor that intention. Till death do us part. People don't stand there and say, until you do something I don't like. They don't say that. They say, till death do us part. And that's how Christians see marriage. And it makes a difference exclusive, exclusive means faithful to you alone, just you and me, baby, nobody else, okay? Covenant, covenant is more than a contract. A contract is like, hey, a deal we make, we shake hands on it, if you break it, I'm done. Covenant is different. It means we make a covenant, and if you don't uphold your end of the deal, I'll still uphold mine. Wow, wow. Wow. Does that sound risky? Guess what? The disciples thought it was risky too. (laughs) Do you know that I am, I am Marnie's only legitimate source of romance for the rest of her life? (laughs) Now it's not just me squirming. She's thinking, what have I hitched my wagon to? I can't believe it. It's vice versa, but I want you to focus. Oh, man, in any marriage talk, you know what's happening? You know what's happening. It's already happened to you. At some point in my talk, you've thought about, I hope the other person is listening to this. When he read, husbands love your wives, I hope he heard all that. Or when he read, wives, respect your husbands, I hope she heard all that. Even Although it was only seven words. It is really hard, but it's the right thing to do. It's really hard to just listen and read your own mail. Husbands, love your wives is not written to wives. Wives, respect your husbands is not written to husbands. It's not your mail. That other part is, if you come away from this sermon in the right mindset, it's because you paid attention to what was written to you, not what was written to the other person. You can come away from this sermon horribly entitled. I know, because I've done it. I've sat there and thought, oh yeah, that's good, that's good. I hope I get a lot of benefit out of this sermon. Instead of thinking, you know what? We're in a covenant. Even if my partner doesn't uphold their end, if they don't come 50% or meet me halfway, I'm going to fulfill what I said I would do. That's the Christian covenant, not the civil marriage contract. It's different. Radically different. So you say, wow, this is great. I'm glad the church has a statement on this. But does it really make any difference? Does it really make any difference in the world or in our practical world? The early church blew the Roman world away with their marriages. Jesus taught this. Disciples received it. They passed it on to other people. And after a while, the whole Roman world sat up and paid attention. Because Christian marriages had become the safest places For women and for children. In a Roman household, it was still the man ruling the roost, doing whatever he wanted. He could have sex with his wife, he could have sex with any of the slave girls, and he did. Sired many children, none of them would be official heirs. When he got old, he'd choose an adult, adopt that man, some guy who could run things, a good manager. And make him his heir. But in the Christians' homes, they were faithful. Men and women faithful. Children cared for and raised. And the Roman world started to notice that being a a woman or being a child in the Roman home was not a great joy. But there's something that the Christians have caught on to. Somebody taught them something that's changed the game I also would add something. the Historians say it's the best place for women and, and children, but I think it's also the best place for men. I don't think it's good for men to get their way all the time. And yes, I said that in full hearing of my wife, who will repeat it sometime in an argument. <laughs> that means I believe it. It's better for us if we harness the strength that we have for productive good in the world than just to live a life that dissipates into nothingness and turns into vapor someday. It's better for us. I mean there's studies, you know men live longer if they're married and you know the joke is always it just seems like it's longer but you no know, it's true we we live longer if we're married there's lots of those things but I want to talk about men guys you're strong in some area. Maybe you're physically strong, harness it. It's meant to bring good to the world. Maybe your strength is your mind, your critical thinker, your intellect. Harness it for the good of other people. Maybe it's the strength of your personality, the way you can interact with other people, the way you can get things done relationally. Harness that. I, the best harness I know that's offered to many men, not all men, but most, many, many men, is Marriage. Because it's easy for a man just to live for himself. I, that 18 to 27, there were some testy periods where I was just like, seriously, there's nobody at home depending on me. I can spend every dollar I make on myself. I can live for myself. I'm not painting a picture of what singles are like. Please don't believe that's a stereotype, but I was like that. Lots of singles are much more uh, wise than that. I remember the conversations with my first mentor, Lauren Tebbett, you know, What are you saving for your future family? I said, nothing. I'm saving for an Xbox. He said, (laughs) that's how boys think. He said, that's how boys think. If you ever want to talk to me about what a man does, come visit me sometime. I'm ready now, I said. I'm ready now. Give me the talk about growing up. If you're looking at me and you're seeing like Peter Pan or something, I don't want to be that guy. (laughs) Give me that talk now. The problem, I just want to say this. Guys, the problem with us is we're being enticed constantly to fight battles that aren't real battles. To be in uh, sexual relationships that aren't real relationships. And the world is always spinning this towards... Stealing the strength of men from producing something good in the world. I've spent a fortnight playing Fortnite. you might say. Good for you. But God's called you to fight real battles in the world that actually count for you and for others. I'm a legend at Apex Legends. That's another video game, just a reference. But you're you're called to really fight. So I, I often worry. I, you know, I'm worried about a generation of boys that don't become men in some areas. I'm not down on gaming. If you game, it's your stress release at the end of the day. I'm, not, I'm no one to preach on it. I had uh, my gaming issues up until I was 30, and I had uh, reoccurrences since then. Right? It was a real addiction in my life, and I had to really fight to get out from under it. So I'm no one to preach on this. But I'm just saying... A man's strength can change the game for others. And marriage is one of the best ways to harness it. I was thinking about this. If Christian marriage stood out as better in the first couple hundred years of the Roman Empire, wouldn't it be great if that was still true today? Now, you, you, let me just throw this out to you. I've heard the same stuff you've heard. Divorce rates are skyrocketing. People are abandoning marriage. Nobody stays married anymore. And then even worse, going to church doesn't matter. The divorce rate is the same in the church. I believed all of these things until I read some research. In fact, it was Shanti Feldman's uh, research that I read that changed my perspective. So she dug, it took her eight years to do it. She dug into those stats to find out what was true. Do you know that half of all marriages are not ending in divorce? According to the American Census Bureau, 72% of those who've ever been married are still married to their first spouse. 72%. And when you dig out the, the rest of the stats, which is, means there's 28% who aren't married to the first spouse, some of them, their spouses have died. Like they're widows or widowers. So the, she really dug down. She says, what's, what's the divorce rate? What's the actual divorce rate for all marriages now, including second marriages and third marriages and fourth and whatever? All marriages, it's in, the divorce rate is in the 31 to 35% range. It's not 50%, but it's 31 to 35 And even though demographers will project that in the future, 50% of all couples will get divorced, that's only a projection. And it hasn't happened yet. Do you know what baby boomers, lots of baby boomers have gotten divorced. But 7 out of 10 of them are still with their first spouse. Baby boomers, 7 out of 10. 70%. So we just think, man, it's just all crumbling around us. Nobody gets married anymore. Nobody stays married anymore. That's not true. Most do. Most do. So what about the church? Because there's this stat that, you know, Barna found that the rate of divorce is the same in the church. It's been quoted and quoted and quoted. So Shanti Feldman went to George Barna, the guy who runs the place. He said, is this true? And he says, man, if there's any stat I wish I could, I could fix people's perception about, it's that one. And she said, well, how did that stat come about? And she said, what I did was I compared people who said they weren't Christians and people who said they were Christians and I, when it came to that, there was very little difference in their divorce rates. And then Shante Feldman said, well, what if we run the numbers again and compare those who say they aren't Christians with Christians who attend church? And they did. And the stats dramatically changed. They dramatically changed. I think some of the studies will say that it's a 25 to 50% shift in the stats when you actually compare them to people who were in church last Sunday. So they did it all over again, and they said, wow, that really matters. So I want to just tell you three things. that Statistically, these are all true. Going to church matters for your marriage. Statistically true. When you tell a struggling couple most people get through this, and you can too, that's statistically true. When you have people who are cynical, they're saying, "Why bother getting married? Nobody stays together," and you say, "Most marriages last last a lifetime, and are happy." That's statistically true. And I believe for years what most people uh, have heard, and that's just like negative, negative, negative. Oh, it's all going, all falling apart. No one's getting married anymore, and Christians aren't any different. It's not true. It's not true. In fact. Uh, this is the New York Times. They, did a, they had a survey they published, and they said they studied marriages. And they said, whose marriages are doing the best? And they, they had four, They had two different uh, categories. Are you traditional or progressive? Are you secular or religious? And then they did four combinations, right? So the ones who got the lowest score were the traditional secular ones. So they're not religious at all, and but they're still traditional, but only 33% of their marriages were happy. And then... Uh, The next was progressive and secular. They were the second worst. So they're progressive in their thinking, but they were secular, no religious connection, and they were 55% satisfied. And then the next one, the next step up, was those who were progressive and religious. So finally, and again, religious could be a lot of things, but finally that factors in, and they were at 60% happy with their marriage, and the most happy group of them all, this is New York Times reporting, Traditional and religious. What? Traditional and religious? They don't have any fun. (laughs) Do they? Hmm. 73%. That was the highest of anyone. Again, you can check it out. New York Times published this, this article. So Christians are more likely to stay married. They're more likely to be happily married. I mean, come on. Let's go to church, people. This is important. So now we come to the, the crux of the, of, the, of the matter. What do I have to say to people who've been divorced and remarried? I think there's a few things we all need to come to grips with. Whether you're divorced and remarried, whether you're single, whether you're married, wherever you're at, even if you're widowed. A few things. One, if you trust God for salvation, then trust God about what he says about marriage. Believe God when he said, about what he says about marriage, about what it is, about how it happens, about how he's involved, about some of the goals and outcomes of marriage. We talked about a lot of that. So that's the first one. And then the second one is, we are all in the need of confessing our sin in regards to this whole broken area of life. I mean, Adam and Eve at one time lived sin-free, shame-free. But we don't. Because sin has entered into every relationship. It's a battle in every heart to just live for yourself instead of to live for God and and others. That's a battle in every heart. And so every one of us, I'm not just talking about people who have been divorced or people who have been remarried. Now, here's the thing about being divorced and remarried. I'm not telling you whether you should have done that or not done that. What I will tell you is, if you have a sense from the prompting of God, the Holy Spirit's work in your heart, that you shouldn't have done that, would you just confess that to him? So I'm not telling you what the rules are. I'm not telling you what counts and doesn't count. We're not getting back into a whole pharisaical explanation about it. But would you just confess that? Would you join all the rest of us who have to confess all the time? Like a few weeks ago, I talked about adultery. And I just said, like, Jesus just made it so that everyone has to repent. Because he said, it's not just that you break the seventh commandment. Is it the seventh? Thou shalt not commit adultery. But it's that you break the tenth commandment. Coveting someone else's wife. Everybody's got to get on their knees like the tax collector and say... God, have mercy on me, a sinner. All of us do. So whether it's uh, the adultery in the heart that you were fighting this week. Now, if you resisted temptation, nothing to confess. But maybe you let it linger. Maybe you, you dwelled on that and you got something to confess. Or, or maybe, like there's some stuff we just want, sometimes we don't want to come back to. We say, I don't want to go to God with the fact that I had sex before I was married. I don't want to go to God with uh, this area, this area, this area, this area, whatever the areas are. But if he prompts you, if he prompts you, not me, but if he prompts you, would you just follow him in obedience and say, God, you're right about this, and I'm wrong. And here's the last one. Here's the last one. Ask for God's grace and blessing on where you are now. God is a God of grace. He really is. He really is. So... I don't know where you're at. You're all at different places. I don't know where you're at. And I don't know the path that got you here. And I don't know what you did along the way. I don't know anything. I know, though, that God is in the business of turning bad into good in our lives. God does that. He's done that for me. Every area where I said, God, I sinned. I was wrong. You were right. He comes in and he he pours his grace over all that. More grace. Than my sin. His grace is greater than my sin. It comes in greater quantities than my sin. I'm so grateful for that. And God wants to do that in your life. And if we just say, okay, God, you might even have a moment where you go, well, I didn't, maybe no one's ever taught on marriage like this, but I'd never heard it before. Maybe I'm recognizing I haven't done things God's way, but I didn't know about it. I was just ignorant about it. I wasn't willfully disobedient. I just didn't know. You know what? Just confess that too. Like that. God, I didn't know. I want to align with you so badly. I'm going to take anything that I'm out of alignment with and I'm going to bring it to you. Would you stand with me this morning? Boy, I just thank you for... Oh, I don't know, you might not come back next week, so maybe I should be, <laughs> shouldn't be presumptuous. These are hard topics, hard topics. Don't worry, not all the Sermon on the Mount is this uh, difficult. And I, if I said something that's caused you to wince, and it's not God speaking that into your life, then I apologize. But if God said something, if Jesus' words have caused you to wince, then reckon with it. Reckon with it. Just reckon with what he says. My commentary falls away, but his word will stand forever. So, Lord, would you pray with me this this morning? Lord, I recognize across this room that we all need grace. We need loads and loads and loads of it. I know for my life I need to burn it like jet fuel every single day because my heart strays from you. It goes towards exalting myself. It goes towards selfish ends. It goes towards what's in it it for me and how can I get the most out of it and is there a loophole I can use. I know my heart is deceitful. I need your grace every day. Every day, every day, every day. And I bet there's other people in the room that they feel that too. And God, the great thing is you provide that grace that we need. You pour it out in even greater quantities. You see us and you see sp- spots in our lives that we haven't even noticed yet. And in your mercy, you're just pouring out grace on us every day. Lord, we just ask in our situation, would you help us to make the best of the scenario we're in? Would you help us make the best of the scenario we're in? I pray for single people that they, they God, you make it clear to them how they can be a big tree of shelter for others. Even if without spouse and kids. That they can make a massive difference for good in the lives of others, give them great vision and encourage them powerfully in pursuing that vision. For people that are married, Lord Jesus, I pray that they, if they're especially if they're beset by a really hard season, would you give them strength, love, patience for each other, a willingness to press through. Lord Jesus, would you help them? They need your grace too. I pray for those who've. Who've been divorced and they've experienced what I talked about that 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 thing where two became one and then didn't quite fully become unone. And Lord, we don't want to we don't want to live in the past and we don't want to be beset by that, but Lord, there's realities that we're facing. I pray you give them grace in those realities. Grace when a perfect world isn't perfect. I pray you give them huge amounts of grace and that their current scenario that they're in, you'd give them uh, awesome strength and power from you to able to do what you're calling them to. I pray for those who've been remarried and and, uh, Lord, we we said, we're a church that blesses those who've been blended together and so we do. We do. Would you bless them? Would you pour grace in their lives as well? Would you help them in every moment that they need? And Lord, there's unique challenges there. Would you just give them what they need? Sometimes the blueprint's a little bit different. So, Lord, give them what they need. Insight, wisdom, patience, strength. A reminder that you're always with them. God, we are totally dependent on you, 100%. Thank you for your reminder. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, which, if we were proud and smug, would knock us down. Lord, I thank you for that. Uh, Keep us in right relationship with you. Lord, I pray today as we end this service as we uh many of us are going to gather around hot dogs and juice and and it's going to be a, a light time i pray that if there's any heart in here that's sorrowing and and deeply hurt by even walking through this conversation i pray that you bring healing to their heart now let them know that you are not against them you are for them i pray that they know that in the deepest part of their heart so that they can enjoy the fellowship of your body in your name amen